0: Well done. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You okay? Good. A little chilly this morning? All right, good. Um, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my dad. He uh, fortunately passed away nearly 20 years ago, which is almost inconceivable to me, but he was uh, LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, and Illinois, and for uh, the good majority of his career, he was a a counselor and had a practice. I remember I was in college, and I was talking with him about his practice and just asking him different questions, wondering if that would be where I would end up going and following in his footsteps uh, as a counselor. So I was asking him a variety of questions. I saved this one question for when my mom was not present. I said, Dad, have you ever struggled, been propositioned by a client? Been a, a time when uh, there was a temptation for you to cross the line? And uh, he was used to ask, me asking hard questions, right? So he... Said yeah, there, there were a few times. So well, well, how did you, how did you handle that? And and so he took some time. He thoughtfully, what he was going to say, and he said, you know, a couple of things, Eric. I I was mindful of some different things. I was mindful one of uh, first and foremost. There's laws against that. Uh, for a reason that. That my clients, there's a, there's a certain vulnerability in the counseling session that I want to honor and be mindful of. That I have uh, relational authority and, um, and, and to violate that, to take advantage of that, um, just that's against the law for one. But two, the, there's, a, there's an integrity of counseling that I have to be mindful of. He said, "But the other thing that I'm really mindful of is your mom and you all, and that that would be a, a betrayal, a deep betrayal to you and, and to your, your sister and brother and especially to your mom. I remember being so thankful that he was my dad at that moment, right that he, that he approached this with a a thoughtfulness, a a a self-awareness um, that he had processed through. He had been a counselor for several years by then, but had thought about those things and those moments and was and it it seemed was prepared for when those moments would come. Last week I wasn't with you, thank you for giving me occasionally time away to sometimes to attend to some family things, which I was. Um, but I did listen to uh, Tracy's message. I thought it was a beautiful message last week, and um, and she shared some language that I wanted to talk about, which I really loved. I felt like this language was inspired on her part. I asked her if she stole it from anywhere, and she said, "No, I think this was." She said, uh, when she talked about a grace identity and a sin identity, I thought that was so beautiful, that that phrase. And and even if you weren't here last week... um, you, you can kind of know what that phrase is about, right? That, that, that sense of, of grace identity, that who God has formed us to be. He's made us all in his image and his likeness. And as we choose to follow his ways, that, that we become, we're learning, right? We're, we're learning that we're not becoming less human, we're becoming fully alive to his glory, honor, and praise. Yes? That that we live into that sense of grace, identity. And I was thinking about my dad in that moment in such a beautiful way. There was was a choice that he had to make uh, apparently a couple of times when he had to choose to live into to being fully who God had created him to be, to live into that grace identity and choose the path of integrity and morality and right, to to honor his relationship with God, honor his relationship with his wife and us kids. But then there's the other side. We don't really need explanation of that sin identity, do we? Right, that that's an opportunity that we can make, that we can choose in those moments of integrity, we can choose to say, yeah, I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my own way. In fact, ooh, I, yeah, this is enticing. This I like. And choose that. And therefore, we're learning, right, then we're diminishing our humanity. We're not living into the likeness and the image of God in which we were created for, in which Jesus died on the cross for us to live into. This morning, we are going to look at an instance of a li- in the life of a saint. In fact, he is perhaps my favorite saint in the Old Testament I love his story I've been I've been challenged and renewed by his story um, and sometimes I meditate on his life in fact I meditate on some from his life he wrote so many of the psalms All right but this morning we're going to look at where his humanity was diminished, where where he chose to live into his sin identity rather than his grace identity. Some of you know who I'm talking about? King David, the man after God's own heart? This should be good, right? No, no. This was the time that he makes a bad choice. This is the time. And friends, I think that we can learn tremendously from this saint, this this godly man after God's own heart when he makes a choice for a sin identity. And it can be a warning to us. In fact, we're not going to, if you would turn way back with me, if you've brought your Bibles, into 2 Samuel, and he falls, many of you know the story, in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, when he sins and chooses to um, uh, invite a married woman, Bathsheba, into his bed, um, We're actually going to read that and meditate on chapter 11 next week. This week, we're going to go one chapter forward in chapter 12, because... David is going to be confronted in this chapter and I think there's something in the confrontation that God wants to teach us this morning in this moment. So for for those of you many of you know the story of David and Bathsheba, let's just recap unfortunately a little bit. So we'll uh he is uh he is walking around apparently he can't sleep and he's He's walking around the top of his palace and he sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and he sends someone to find out about her and he finds out that she is married. And unfortunately, that was the moment that he should have made a right decision, but he invites her or brings her into his bed, he sleeps with her, sends her home, but You know, he thinks, I'm doing all right. He's the king, right? Problem, she gets pregnant. The problem is she's married. Her husband is off at war. Uriah, he's fighting for his king, who just slept with his wife. And uh, he's going to come back, and he's going to know that he didn't sleep with Bathsheba, so she's in trouble. So he brings Uriah. He tries to get him drunk. It sounds like I'm making it up, but no, this is in Scripture. Tries to get him to sleep with his wife, but Uriah is such a stand-up guy, he will not sleep with his wife while his fellow warriors are on the field. He is a man of integrity. So David, man after God's own heart, decides to fix it. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield and tells his commander-in-chief, Joab, to make sure Uriah is killed on the battlefield, which he is. David sends word to Bathsheba, I fixed it. And in fact, it works out really good for David. Now she's a widow. Now he can marry her. So she, you know, he gives some time for mourning and then brings her in, marries her. Now he's got a new beautiful wife and he's got a son, right, to carry on. So David, I would imagine, is feeling pretty good about himself, because he fixed it. At the end of chapter 11, there's a a, a verse of scripture that kind of serves as a warning. It says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I think if there was like a overlay with a piano, this would have been the moment that it went dun 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 dun. Right? He, it's coming. David was feeling like he fixed it. He's the king after all. But the Lord was watching, and we pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 1. Says. The Lord sent Nathan to David, who was a prophet. When he came to him, he said, There were two men. He tells him a story, a parable in the Old Testament. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared this little lamb, shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David, hearing this story, burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. That's right, David, yeah. <laughs> then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Not in a good way he said that. In a really bad way, he said, you would the man. This is what The Lord, the God of Israel, said, hear the Lord's heart in these words. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. It's the part that gets me. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? I think that's Nathan himself. King, my king, why did you despise the word, the truth, the law, the way? Why did you despise God himself, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. I would encourage you to read the rest of the story. Let's just pause for a moment to pray. So, Lord, help us to hear what you're saying. What are you saying to us each individually? What are you saying to us as a church, Lord? Lord, would you use... uh, Meditations of my heart help them not to get in the way, but to join your voice in our hearts and souls. In your name, we pray, amen. In rereading the story, one of the things that that strikes me, maybe the the primary thing that struck me in the story, and perhaps why I wanted to meditate on it this morning, is how unaware. David was to Nathan and what was going on I mean this was this would have been obviously months or a, a little bit maybe even a year after he had fixed Things Right, but he seems to be walking like you would think he would have a sense of guilt, a sense that his conscience would have been revealed, but we don't hear any of that, right? We don't hear the sense of he saw Nathan the prophet in his court. He wasn't like, ooh, uh uh-oh. Right? this is, yeah, God's, prop no, none of that, right, he's like, Nathan, how are you, I mean, he doesn't say that, but there's just no sense uh, of this conscience, and as I, as Nathan was going through the story, I was thinking that maybe David would go, oh, uh-oh, rich guy, poor guy, took the la- see where he's going, but none of that, he is just clueless, right, he's, he, he doesn't see that, finally, Nathan has to say, David, you are the man, right, he's, he, he, David is, he, there's this, this spiritual deadness or blindness to him that Nathan, maybe that's why Nathan has to share a parable to get past that blindness, to bring him into the moment, to realize, to get David to realize the depth of his sin and what he has done. That there is a, not only a lack of an awareness, but maybe even the, the sense of, of self-deception that, that he doesn't know the state of his own heart—that he's he's justified it. Well, yeah, maybe you know I didn't actually kill Uriah; I just helped the process along. Well, apparently, yeah. I, now she's my wife, and this is a good thing. Now I have another heir, right? Whatever he told himself, there's this measure of self-deception. And unfortunately, I feel like this can be a profound lesson for us. That we can fall into these moments, especially when we're trying to justify sin. That we allow ourselves to be self-deceived. And it's a lesson for us. I have a good friend, a sacred friend named Mark, and his phrase was always this, sin makes you stupid. And I think he's right. There's an element when we start to compromise, when we start to sin, when we start to live into that sense of that sin identity, we begin to lie to ourselves and others we begin to allow the the self-deception of the soul to press in. I was thinking of all the ways that David seems unaware. I was thinking the first way that David seems to really show a lack of an awareness is this idea of the Lord's heart the Lord's perspective, how the Lord saw that situation. Like, he wasn't even have any fear in the Lord, among the Lord's prophet, right, with Nathan. He's just going. And, and the, that little phrase that we read at the end of chapter 11, but, but God but the Lord, he was displeased with David. David had it going on, but the Lord said, no, how many times in our sin do we allow ourselves to be self-deceived about God's heart for a given situation? What makes it surprising in part is David wrote so many of the psalms that we celebrate. And I think that either David, being a man after God's own heart, started there, but in this moment, fell into this place of self-deception. And then potentially learned again, learned anew God's heart and God's perspective. Few psalms that I thought are so contrary to David's heart and character in this moment. Lessons learned by David. A deep learning from the Lord. Psalm 51, in fact, is written in response after the fact. Listen to how different this verse is that David composed as opposed to the story Uh, this instance with Bathsheba and Uriah, he says in Psalm 51.3, for I know my transgressions and I know my sin is always before me. Well, that's new for David, right? Or maybe not new, but old. But that wasn't him in that moment, was it? And yet he's learning, relearning. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right, Lord, in your verdict and justified when you judge. He's saying, I see that my sin is before me. I see that you care about my sin. I see that your eyes are upon my life. One thing he lost sight of in the Bathsheba story. Yes? Now I used to struggle with the phrase against you and you only have I sinned. Seems like he sinned against a whole lot of people, right? And not just the Lord. So I just looked at what what was he saying there? And what some of the commentators and pastors are saying, which it seems to make sense to me, is He is focused in on the idea of when we sin against others, ultimately and profoundly, it's a sin against the Lord. That's what he's saying there. In fact, if you think about it, I was thinking about how closely the Lord aligns himself with his people in a positive way he talks about in Matthew 25 he shares the parable of the goats and the sheep some of you recall that one and you remember he, he says that i'm looking for people who are visiting the least of these in prison who are sharing food and clothing and he, and jesus says this profound statement he says when you when you visit or when you care for those people you are Caring for him, right? So in a really profound sense as Christians, like in the the city served day yesterday, in that profound sense as we were serving, sometimes people that we hadn't seen, we're serving the Lord. This is kind of the dark side of that truth. That the Lord so aligns with his people. That when we sin against others, we sin against the Lord. That that God knew Uriah. God loved him. God had plans for him. And what David did broke the heart of God. I want to choose my grace identity and share the grace that I have received and share that with the least of these and not live into my sin identity. I've been reading a a, a Catholic author and he was talking about a holistic faith that's mindful of both personal integrity as well as service and social justice issues. And he was he was challenging one person, who was a nun, who was all about personal integrity, but her life was not meaningfully connected to the brokenness of the world. And he says, that's not enough. Yes, focus on your own relationship with God, but allow yourself to care and be connected with others. He was also challenging... Uh, a person outside of the church who's was dialed into social justice issues, and he and he leveraged his life for so many of the social justice, but he had no sense of that personal integrity. He was challenging that person, and the and the guy said, he said, with all the the ales, ailments in the world, do you think God really cares about who I sleep with? And the priest said, yeah, he cares about both. He invites us to live with integrity in the the quiet moments, in the silent moments, and then calls us to serve and love and live his grace for the least of David in that moment was unaware of the Lord's displeasure with his life. A second area that I I feel David was really unaware of was was the, at least I would say it like this, the potential of his own sin-sick soul. That, That he was not living. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, next week, but Psalm 51.5, he says this, which is, which is very different. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I think this is a key aspect of self-awareness, that we are mindful of those moments that no matter how long that we've journeyed with the Lord, no matter how, how much good that we've established, no matter what position we hold in the house of God, that the potential for sin is still there. That, that's not part of being human, that's part of the human fallen condition, right? Like I guess it is part of being human, but as we stand now, that that human fallen condition is there no matter who we are and how long we've been journeying with the Lord. I don't know if you'll connect with this. I was hoping perhaps you I was thinking of a video clip that if we watch it afresh, you, you'll recognize the video clip, but but do it in in uh the, the context of what we're talking about in a spiritual context. Take the physical application and be mindful of the spiritual application. See if see if this works. It's, it's from Apollo 13. All right. Well, we go. got a couple of housekeeping procedures for you. We'd like you to roll right to zero, 060 zero, and null your rates. Roger that. Rolling right, zero, 060. Zero. And then if you could, uh, give your oxygen tanks a stir. Roger that. we a problem here. What did you do? Nothing, I stirred the tanks. Whoa. Hey. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. When was the last time your oxygen tanks were stirred? Yeah? That's going to happen. It doesn't matter who you are. There's going to be a stirring of our oxygen tanks. doesn't matter how. I had a good friend who's a pastor, and he, we were sharing some accountability, and he was saying, boy, I really thought I had this lust thing down, and I failed. Right? He, and I was like, yeah, I don't know if we fully ever don't have, and for whatever sin, whether it's whether it's lust, whether it's uh, sexual, whether it's uh, gossip, whether it's bitterness, whatever that is. There's that moment that we're being mindful when he saw Bathsheba bathing. His oxygen tanks were stirred, right? Too bad one of his attendants shouldn't have didn't say, Jerusalem, we have a problem. Let's not send someone to see if she's married or not, right? In that in that moment. There's moments in David's life where you see him handle those moments in such a beautiful way when it seems like, for example, Saul, his, his perse- the one who is persecuting him, the one who's trying to take his life, and he's right there available for David to strike down in his manner saying, yes, God has orchestrated that. And he said, uh-uh, no That's not God's way. His oxygen tanks were turned in a different way. But he had the insight to say, no, I'm not going to live out of what's right before me. I'm going to live out of the grace of God that I know is true, the truth of God. So I would say an important part of Jesus' teaching continually is he continues to say, be mindful of what is going on here. When all the religious leaders were so focused on on the outward things, what we eat and what we drink and who we associate with and who we're close to in the cleansing, and he says, listen, that's the wrong way, Mark 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that the evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. He's saying be mindful of the inside. That's where it begins. That's when the oxygen tanks are stirred. And then you say, okay, I'm not going to simply respond to what's before me. Another author talks about spirituality simply this: says, there's a fire within. And you can use that fire and that passion for good or for evil. And he defines spirituality by simply disciplining that fire within. Talk more about that next week. David was clueless or blind. I know this was after David had learned that, this lesson. But whether he got tired or lazy or sloppy, he let his guard down. Let us take the lesson from David's life. Let us be mindful of the state of our own soul. And finally, this awareness, unaware of the consequences of his own sin. I think there's a temptation out there that, that we believe that if we escape the consequences of this world, we escape all consequences. And the Lord says, no, no. No, there, there's more. That all, if, we, if there indeed is a God, if there indeed is a God of righteousness and justice, then we will face his consequences in this life or the next. It's interesting if you read further in the story, David confesses. He says, you're right, Nathan, I'm the man. And Nathan says, you're forgiven. And then David has to live with some pretty harsh consequences. I think there's a, a, a danger that we have sometimes of associating consequences with forgiveness. And, and God says, no, no, no. I promise forgiveness. That doesn't mean you will not Uh, feel the full brunt of consequences. Psalm 6, 1 through 3. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. This is the David that recognizes the consequences of sin, not just in the world, but in his own soul, in his own body. So often he talks of the, his bones are in agony. My soul is in deep agony anguish. How long, Lord? How long he recognized?